One of the tougher questions of the Christian faith is this. Are you willing to follow Christ at any cost? Are you prepared to surrender everything to the Savior? Another angle to that question is this. Is there anything in your life that you're unwilling to forfeit unto Jesus in order to follow Him? Is there something in your life that you value so highly that if Jesus were to demand it from you, you would find it nearly impossible to follow Him? These questions may be easy to answer on a Sunday morning in the middle of the year under the buckle of the Bible belt. But if you and I are daring enough to take these questions seriously, we must come to the conclusion that following Christ is not for the faint-hearted or the weak-minded. Following Jesus demands courageous commitment and sacrificial surrender. Anything less than that, anything other than that, is not the Christianity of the gospel. This brings us to our story this morning. You know that since December, we've been walking through the Gospel of Luke in a sermon series entitled Blessed Assurance. We lifted that title right out of the first few lines of the Gospel track. Luke says, I wrote these words so that you may have blessed assurance of the things that you've been told and taught about Jesus. Because Luke wants us to know the real Jesus and what this real biblical Jesus expects from you and from me. So today, we're introduced to a man. And i got to give you a fair warning up front that this man may look a lot like you. And this man might look a lot like me. This might be our portrait. So this morning, I invite you to take the Bible, turn to Luke chapter 18, verses 18 to 30. Once you've found your place in sacred Scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. As today we talk about following Christ at any cost. Luke chapter 18, let's begin at verse 18. A certain ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. Then Jesus heard this and he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard this asked, Who then can be saved? And Jesus replied, What is impossible with men is possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left all we had to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus said, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents 
or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, which is eternal life. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. You may be seated. This man's story is told in three out of the four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all give us a greater detail to the identity and personality of this individual. It is Matthew who says, this man was young. It is Mark who communicates the zeal of this young man, for he says that he ran up to Jesus and fell at his feet, and he asked this burning question. It is Luke who says that this man was a ruler. Not a political ruler, not an elected official, probably not even a synagogue ruler, though maybe he was. In all likelihood, this man was a ruler in the sense that he could rule with authority and with influence, for everybody knew he was a mover and shaker in the community. He was a decision maker in his village. All three of them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all say that he was a wealthy man. So now we put them all together and you get the portrait of the rich young ruler. And this rich young ruler had everything. He had youthful vigor. He had unlimited money. He had powerful influence. He had everything. These are the kind of things that most of us spend a lifetime trying to attain and trying to maintain. For most, if not all of us, want to hold on to youthful vigor as long as we can. That's why there are so many cosmetics and health programs and health products and pills and diets and supplements and vitamins. That's why People have surgeries and lifts and tucks, all because we want youthful vigor and unlimited wealth. Every person wants to be financially independent. And most people I know would say, you know what, if I just had a little bit more, life would be easier. If I had a little bit more each month, that would alleviate this problem and that would help alleviate that problem. That little bit may be $50 a month. It could be an extra $500 a month. It may be an extra $5,000 a month. But most people I know say if I just had a little bit more money, life would be better and powerful influence. Most people I know want to be influential they want to make good on humanity. They want other people to be able to respect them and to listen to them. And politics are at play every place on the planet. They're in the White House. They're at the clubhouse. They're in God's house, in the outhouse. They're even in your house and in my house. Everywhere, politics are at play. Why? Because people want leverage. They want influence. They want to be the ones making the decisions. This young man had everything. Youthful vigor, limitless financial resources, and powerful influence. Yet even though this one had everything, he wondered if he was missing one thing. He wondered if he had eternal life. He was wondering if he was at peace with God. It is this nagging question that drives him on his knees at the feet of Jesus. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
On the surface, it sounds like a good question, doesn't it? It's a question that had burrowed into his spirit. He had everything, but he wondered, was he missing one thing? And the one thing's a pretty important thing. He was wondering if he was at peace with the Lord. Did he have salvation? Did he have forgiveness? Did he have eternal life? And so he is driven to a great source, the Lord Jesus the Christ. you got to give him kudos for that. At least he goes to the right person to get the answer. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There are a couple of flaws in his question. Did you catch them? The first one is, he thinks, like so many people, he thinks that salvation can be humanly attained. What must I do to inherit eternal life? It probably would have been more theologically accurate for him to go up and say, what must I receive to inherit eternal life? What must I believe to inherit eternal life? What must I accept to inherit eternal life? But he comes at it from a very humanistic perspective, which a lot of people come at it from a very humanistic perspective, and they wonder, what must I do to inherit eternal life? For certainly, they believe salvation is something that can be achieved by their own merit. You do realize that Christianity is the only world religion that has the self-movement of God where He comes down to us. Every other world religion says that if you want to get to God, you've got to do good. And doing good will help build you up into a place where you can stand in front of the Almighty. But Christianity reverses it completely, turns it on its head, uh, and says, no, Christianity is an example of how God in His self-movement came down to our level. And He stooped down to us that God sank Himself into flesh. And God came to us. So you and I both know that we're not saved because of our merit. We're saved because of His mercy. It's not what we have done. It's what He has done that makes all the difference. So the first flaw is that He comes from a very humanistic perspective. What must I do to inherit eternal life? But Jesus doesn't necessarily tap into that flaw, does He? He can't get past the other one. Jesus is frustrated. Jesus is irritated. His rebuttal seems a little snippy, don't you think? He responds by saying, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Why do you call me good? Good teacher, why do you call me good? Jesus says. See, Jesus understands what you and I might initially miss. That in one breath, this rich young ruler just demoted Jesus. He demoted him to just a good man. A good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus knows full well, he's so much more than just a good man. Jesus is the God-man. He is the God of the cosmos. He is the king of the universe. And in one failed swoop, in one breath, this rich young ruler came up and demoted Jesus and put him down to the level of just being a good man. What the rich young ruler does is what millions have done. They try to take the middle road when it comes to Jesus. Not quite ready to declare Him as Christ. At the same time, not wanting to defame Him as historically irrelevant. So, they just take the middle ground. Who is Jesus? A good man. A good teacher. 
a holy rabbi, a holy man who lived some 2,000 years ago. After all, most will agree that Jesus was a cut above the average guy. He was a good man. And this rich young ruler wants to take the middle ground, not ready to declare him as Christ, yet also acknowledging that he is better than the average person. Jesus is offended at this. Jesus' people ought to be offended at this. Don't demote Jesus. Don't relegate him just to the confines of being a good man, a moral man, a holy teacher, a rabbi. He's God in the flesh. Not another God, not a creation of God, not, not a lesser God. He is God all by himself. He's God in the flesh. And Jesus came to show us who God is, what God looks like, what God expects. Jesus comes to this man and says, if you're going to call me good, you better believe that I'm God because only God is good. If you're going to call me good, you better believe I'm God because only God is good. You know the commandments, Jesus says. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal. Do not lie, bear false testimony. Honor your father and your mother. People have accurately concluded that Jesus gave him the second half of the Decalogue primarily. It's the horizontal commitments of how we are to live one with the other, how we are to interact with each other. And some people have asked the great question, why didn't Jesus in that moment give the rich young ruler the vertical uh, demands of God, which are the first part of the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, where it says, you know, there's only one God, there's no other God but me. Uh, you shall not make a God out of any idol and bow down and worship it. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, and you should remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And then he could have summarized it all up by saying you should not commit uh, a covetousness uh, spirit in your person and Jesus could have said all of that but, but why? Why did he only say those commands that interact one with the other about not committing adultery and murder and stealing and lying and honoring father and mother? Well, I think that Jesus wants this guy to know just how desperate he is. He wants him to be able to conclude I can't do that very well so by implication, I can't be right with God and obey the first part of the Ten Commandments either. It was Daryl Bach who said that, that really, if a person can obey the second half of the Ten Commandments, it implies that they're in right standing with God through the first four of the Ten Commandments. What Jesus wants this man to realize is that he is desperately lost. He's desperately in need of salvation. That the one thing that he needs is the one thing that eludes him, which is eternal life. He has everything else life has to offer, but he does not have right standing before the Lord. He's not right before God. He's not even right with fellow man. And Jesus wants this rich young ruler to fall down and say, I need thee. Oh, I need thee. But instead, he says, all these I've kept since I was a boy. I've never committed adultery. I've never murdered anybody. I've never stolen anything from anyone because 
Why? He's got limitless wealth. He never needed to steal a thing. He must have sat there and thought, I've never lied to anyone, not that I can remember. And I've honored my father and mother. In fact, if you interviewed them right now, they would say they're as proud as punch over me because of all that I've done and accomplished in my life. I've kept all these since I was a boy. Maybe this guy's arrogant. Or maybe he's just ignorant. You know, ignorance is just a lack of knowledge. Maybe he's just ignorant. After all, there's nothing else in this story that would lead us to conclude that somehow this man has an addictive, abusive disorder or behavior in his life. You're not given any indication that somehow he has a double lifestyle. You're not given any indication that he throws a wild frat parties on Friday and Saturday night. You're not given even a hint that he wastes his wealth on wild living like the prodigal son of Luke 15. You're given every indication that this is a fine, upstanding, moral individual who's probably 20-some years old. Truth of the matter is, that's the kind of guy that we would love to volunteer to be the chaperone with our students at summer camp. I mean, that's the kind of guy that you would love to be the coach of Junior's travel baseball team. That, that's the kind of guy that we would want to volunteer in the children's ministry to say, yeah, I'll take the boys to the state park and we can camp out at night. I mean, you feel safe with that guy because he, he seems to be moral. He seems to be upstanding. He seems to be honest. He, he seems to, to be kind of a, a decent guy. Let's be honest, moms and dads. He's the kind of guy that you would love for your daughter to bring home instead of all those bozos that she is bringing home. I mean, if this guy walked in the house, you go, yes, finally. Yes, you got it. Hang on to this one. Look, he, he's got it right. He's been to Sunday school. He knows the, the, the right answers, and he can provide for you. <laughs> and he's got influence. Hang on to him. This is the kind of guy that most of us would respect and like. When he says, all these I've kept since I was a boy, he's not saying that he's perfect. But he's saying, some people think I am. He's not saying that he's sinless. But he's saying, I must not be far from it. Jesus, if that's what it takes to get eternal life, punch my ticket. I'm in! I've... I've done it. If, if that's all that's expected of being a, uh, a person in God's heaven, in God's kingdom, a recipient of eternal life, punch my ticket because I've never committed adultery. I've never killed anybody. I don't lie. I don't steal. Don't have to. And I honor my father and mother by how I live my life today. So Jesus, you go ahead and punch my ticket. I am in. If that's all it takes, I got it. Check it off. I have everything, even eternal life. And Jesus says, but there's still one thing that you lack. You need to sell everything that you have. Give the money to the poor. Then you have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. Now this verse ought to make all of us squirm. You're not squirming very much. 
The reason it should make us squirm is because we have to ask the question, is Jesus giving a blanket statement of what it is to be a recipient of eternal life? Do all of us have to sell all of our possessions, give money to the poor, then we'll have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow him? Is Jesus making a requirement for salvation, abject financial poverty? Because if he is then I think all of us have missed the boat. Because last time I checked, all of us still have stuff. All of us still have quite a bit of stuff. If Jesus is saying that in order for you to have eternal life, in order for anybody to have eternal life, you've got to subject yourself to financial uh, poverty, then we just look around. We have grossly misinterpreted Jesus. If that's what he's saying, if he's saying in order for you to come and follow me, you must first sell everything you've got. Give to worthy causes. Give to help the poor. And then come and follow me. If that's what Jesus means, then all of us are in a world of hurt. And what we need to do is in the sermon right now, go home as quickly as we can, put a for sale sign in the front yard, have the biggest yard sale this city has ever seen. But ain't a one of y'all moving yet. Because you got a sneaking suspicion that that's not what Jesus meant. That's clearly what he meant to this man, isn't it? Clearly, what he says to this man, Jesus is not mixing words. This is a serious subject. He says, listen, you want eternal life. There is something that's really got a grip of your heart. So I tell you what, you have got to sell your possessions, give to the poor, then come. And follow me. Is Jesus saying that if you're going to be his follower, you must subject yourself to abject financial poverty? The short answer is no. And there's a collective sigh of relief that goes across the crowd. He may call some of us to do that, but he's not giving a blanket statement for all of us, making a, a mandatory statement that all of us have to do. He may call some of us to do that, but he's not calling all of us to do that. But before uh, you flip-flop off the hook too quickly, let me just remind you, that Jesus spends 25% of his teaching ministry talking about money. That tells me this is not just a problem for the rich young ruler. This is a problem for humanity. It's a problem for the human heart. And all of us at some level have this problem. Some may be greater, some lesser, but all of us at some level have this, have this problem. And Jesus spends a lot of his time talking about money, talking about wealth. He never says that money is bad, but he says that it can be used in your life in very bad ways. I've said before, and I'll say it again, Jesus is much more concerned about your righteousness than your riches. You can be righteously rich. You can be unrighteously rich. You can be righteously poor. You can be unrighteously poor. 
Jesus is more concerned about your righteousness, your right standing before the Lord than he is your riches. But Jesus understands that how we spend and utilize our riches oftentimes is dictated and reveals the level of righteousness that we have before the Lord. So the two uh, are somewhat interconnected. Jesus understands this. So he says to this man, you, you've got to sell your possessions, give money to the poor, and come and follow me. It's not by accident that in the very next chapter, in Luke 19, we're introduced to that wee little man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a rich man. He was as wealthy as the rich young ruler, maybe even more so. And Luke puts side by side the story of the rich young ruler with the rich tax collector named Zacchaeus. You remember that story, don't you? I know you remember the song. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree, and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down, because I'm going to your house today. What a great story. Zacchaeus has LMS, see, little man syndrome. He's short. I don't know how short he is, but he's a wee little man. And he wants to see Jesus, and Jesus is coming his way. So he goes in front of the crowd, scurries up the sycamore fig tree to get a bird's eye view of Jesus. When Jesus comes, he stops in the middle of the town, and he looks up and calls Zacchaeus by name. He probably had never met Zacchaeus before. Zacchaeus had probably never met Jesus before. And he calls him by name. Zacchaeus, you come down, because I'm going to your house today. And they go to the palatial estate of Zacchaeus. And after the glorious banquet that Zacchaeus must have thrown for Jesus, Zacchaeus stands up and says, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay them back four times the amount. Zacchaeus was generous, was he not? He gave away 50% of his income. That's a lot. Once again, you can shake your head up and down, north and south. That's a lot. You may think to yourself in a very cynical way, yeah, but he's a rich guy. He can afford to give away 50%. No, think about it. 50% of anybody's income is a lot of money to that person. Think about you giving away 50% of your income. According to first century Judaism, it was believed to be very generous if a person gave away 20%. Zacchaeus says, I'll give away 50%, half of my income. If I've cheated anybody out of anything, it really shouldn't be if, it should be since. Since I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay them back four times the amount. Zacchaeus had been to Sunday school. He knows in Deuteronomy that it reads that if you steal your neighbor's sheep, you've got to pay it back fourfold. I want to be very clear. Zacchaeus is not saved because he gave away a large sum of money. But Zacchaeus gave away a large sum of money because he was saved. He was changed. Zacchaeus is an example of one who is righteously rich. But our story, the rich young ruler, when he hears the call of the gospel, when he hears the invitation of Jesus, it's Matthew and Mark who say that he turned around and walked away. All of them say he was very sad because he had great wealth. One of the gospel writers say that his head was downcast. 
He was devastated. He thought he was right there on the brink of salvation. He was about to punch his ticket. He said, Jesus, if those five commands are all that you need for me to get into your kingdom, I'm in. And then Jesus pulls in a curveball. He gives this other command of selling all of his stuff, and the man goes away sad because he refuses to do it. At some level, this rich young ruler was willing to give God his morality. He was willing to give God his marriage, if he was married. He probably was willing to give God his children, if he had children. Probably willing to give God his friendships, all of his relationships. But he couldn't stomach the notion of surrendering his stuff to the Savior. He thought to himself, I will not lose what I have gained in order to gain what I cannot lose. He was not willing to lose all that he had gained in order to gain what he could not lose. And he walked away. Jesus is standing right there before him, offering the invitation, telling him to come and follow me. And he walks away. And Jesus doesn't run after him. Jesus does not follow him and plead with him and say, oh, oh wait, whoa, 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 I was just joking. I, I got you, got you. I really didn't mean everything. He didn't follow him and say, no, whoa, whoa, let's renegotiate this deal. He let him go. Jesus let him go. He didn't follow him, didn't run after him, didn't renegotiate the deal. He didn't say, hey, whoa, whoa, let's barter this thing a little bit. You can keep some of your stuff and still follow me. No, Jesus stands there and says, bye-bye. He lets him go. I'm sure there were some of the disciples of Jesus who said, Jesus, well, aren't you going to go get him? After He's a rich guy. We got Judas who's robbing us blind. This guy may be able to fund the ministry. Jesus says, nah, let him go. Here's a newsflash. Um, I've concluded in my life that I need Jesus more than Jesus needs me. You need Jesus more than Jesus needs you. There are times when you, just like the rich young ruler, you try to play with God, don't you? You try to negotiate with the Savior. You try to say, I'm walking away, I'm walking away, I'm walking away. I'll give you a lot, but I'm not going to give you everything. I'm walking away. Jesus, you better come follow me. Jesus, you better come hound me. Jesus, you better come plead with me. We better renegotiate this deal. And Jesus stands there, according to the biblical Jesus, and says, so long. That's not the image of the Boy Scout Jesus in our culture today. But that's the biblical Jesus here. Why? Because you need Jesus more than Jesus needs you. Jesus offered the gospel. He gave him the invitation. He invited him to come and follow. Yet the man willfully turned around and walked away. It's kind of a tense moment, don't you think? I mean, all the disciples are on edge. Jesus is standing there. He is not going to be moved. What do you do in a tense moment? You crack a joke, right? 
you, you gotta kind of lighten the mood a little bit. That's what Jesus does. I mean, that's kind of what he does. He says how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. I'll tell you what, boys. It's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Nobody, joked, nobody laughed at the joke that day either. Nobody's laughing today. But Jesus is, is making something humorous. He said, listen, I've I got to tell you, it's hard. It's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get in the kingdom of God. Now, people have tried to explain away the joke. People have tried to explain away the little statement that Jesus makes. People have tried to say that uh, there around the city, there was a wall, and to the right of the large gate, there was a, a little opening that a camel uh, would have to get down on all fours and kind of skimmy and, and scoot and shake his way all the way through. And they called that the eye of a needle. And Jesus is saying, hey, boys, it's easier for a camel to get through uh, that eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Guys, I got to tell you, I don't think that Jesus is talking about a hole in the wall. Because if a camel wants to go into the city, he's going to walk through the big, large gate and not the little bitty old hole. So what's Jesus talking about? He's saying, look, the biggest animal in Palestine is a camel. The smallest hole is the eye of a needle, a sewing needle. And it's easier for a camel, a large, massive camel, to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God if he's relying on his wealth and he's worshiping his money. What Jesus does in all of this is he identifies an idol in this man's life. And this man's idol uh, was his wealth. Like Zacchaeus, he was caught between grace and goods. Like Zacchaeus, he was caught between money and mercy. But unlike Zacchaeus, the rich young ruler did not choose grace and he did not choose mercy. He refused to submit his idol to the Lord. An idol is... Um, Anything that takes your attention or your affection off of Jesus. That's an idol. Uh, we could come up with a fancier definition than that, but that'll suffice. It's anything that takes your attention or your affection off of Jesus. And most of the time in today's culture, we say we don't have any idols. We don't have any statues. We don't have any little uh, images that we bow down to. But I dare say there are probably some objects, some things, even some people in your life that just might take your attention and your affection off of Jesus. You know what's interesting? I've discovered that, that idols can be good things that we turn into God things. An idol can be something that's very good. Nothing wrong with it. Except if we give it too much emphasis, too much priority, then that good thing becomes a, a God thing. The only time an idol really rears its ugly head for you to notice is in the prospect of that thing being taken away from you, and then you see how you respond. For example, your health is a good thing. It's a good thing. But it can become a God thing. Because uh, 
if Jesus were to demand your health from you, how would you respond? Your spouse is a good thing. He or she is a gift from God. And you love your spouse. And you love your children. And you love your grandchildren. And some of you have grandchildren. Wish that you knew how much you would love grandchildren. You'd have them first before you had your children. Numerous of you have told me that. You, you love your spouse. You love your children. You love your grandchildren. It's a good thing that can become a God thing. What if Jesus were to demand one of them from you? What if Jesus were to take your spouse from you? What if Jesus were to take your child from you? What if Jesus were to take your darling seven-year-old granddaughter from you? How would you respond? Having a nest egg is a good thing. Having a uh, standard of living is a good thing. Having a bank account is a good thing. But it can become a God thing. What if God takes away your standard of living? What if God drains your bank account? What if God doesn't give you the promotion? Then how are you going to respond? Because how you respond reveals whether or not that has become an idol in your life. Your car, your house, your boat, all those things are good things. But when you think about the prospect of that being taken away, how do you respond? Remember what I asked you at the very beginning. Is there anything in your life that you value so highly that if Jesus were to demand it from you, you would find it nearly impossible to follow him whatever that thing whatever that person whatever that object is my friend that's your idol that's your idol and what do you do with idols smash them break them surrender them under the lord the rich young ruler could not stomach the notion of smashing his idol. My stuff, I love my stuff. I gotta have my stuff. I can't surrender that unto the Lord. And Jesus says how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking to yourself, now wait a minute, pastor. I'm not rich. I get out of this story because I'm not rich. He's a rich young ruler. He's got a problem with money, but I don't have a problem with money. Why? Because I ain't got none. I'm not rich. Okay. You think you're not rich. Let me put it to you this way. When we get done here, um, you're going to get into a car. That car is going to drive you to your house. Probably sometime this afternoon, you're going to flip on a television. Many probably have a flat screen, high definition television. You're going to walk into a room, you're going to flip a switch, and electricity is going to come on, and your lights are going to illuminate the room. Then you're going to go over to a sink, you're going to turn a knob, you're going to have running water right there, clean drinking water. And then when nature calls, what are you going to do? You're going to go into your bathroom that's located in your house, and you're going to do whatever needs to be done. Then you're going to flush it all out of your house. Why? Because you have indoor plumbing. All that I just described... The rich young ruler had none of that. He had no car. He had no flat screen television. He had no electricity to flip with a switch. He had no clean drinking water at the turn of a faucet. And he had no indoor plumbing. If he saw my life and if he saw your life, he'd go, whoa, you are rich. And we call him a rich young ruler. 
I, I don't tell you that to try to belittle the blessings of life. Hey, listen, I'm glad that I got indoor plumbing. I, I'm glad that I got a house and a car. I'm glad that I've got those things. I'm not belittling that in any way. And those things are not bad things. They're good things. But if good things become God things, then those God things become idols. And what do you do with an idol? You've got to smash it and surrender it unto the Lord. That is where you hopefully are different than the rich young ruler. Because the rich young ruler could not bring himself to do that. And when Jesus says how easy it is for the rich, uh, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. It's Peter who speaks up. Duh. Peter's the one that always speaks up. How can this be? Why? Because it was believed that a sure sign of God's blessing was worldly wealth. He's saying, if this guy can't get in, then nobody can get in. How can this be? Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. And Jesus said, Listen, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or parents or children in this life will fail to receive many times over in this life and in the life to come, which is eternal life. What did the rich young ruler want? He wanted eternal life. That's his question, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Eternal life is surrendering everything unto the Lord. And Jesus says to Peter, listen, I know you have sacrificed much. You have been courageous in your commitment because uh, following Christ always demands courageous commitment and sacrificial surrender. And Jesus affirms that. And he says, listen, whatever you've sacrificed will pale in comparison to what you receive in the crown jewel of heaven, Jesus the Christ, in this life and in the life to come for all of eternity in heaven with God, which is eternal life. Once again, clearly here, Jesus. Jesus is not saying, He's not giving a command for you to divorce your spouse. Well, He said, i got to leave my wife. No, He didn't say leave your wife. He's not saying, I've got to abandon my responsibility to my children. No, He's not saying that either. And He's probably not even saying, go home and put a for sale sign in your yard. What He is saying is, if you are going to follow Christ, it will demand courageous commitment from you, and it will demand sacrificial surrender. So if you follow Christ as hard as you can, you will have to sacrifice some time that you would give to your family, your wife, your husband, your children. You're going to give it to the Lord. And you are going to sacrifice some finances unto Him. But whatever you sacrifice will pale in comparison to what you receive in eternal life. And eternal life begins the moment of faith. It begins the moment that you declare your dependency upon Christ and He resides inside of you. So Jesus says, listen, you, you follow Me. You're going you're to give Me some time that you would reserve for your family. You follow me, you're going to give me some of your resources that you would reserve for spending on yourself. You follow me, you're going to be selfless where you would have been selfish. So in other words, Jesus says, I, I want it all. I demand it all. I've got to have it all. You know, I thought about this on the way home. We, we came back from vacation yesterday. Vacation when on the drive home is a great time to think about a sermon. It's a fantastic time to think about preaching. 
Because you're driving all you got is miles ahead of you. And I was sitting there thinking about this. And I was thinking, you know, Jesus, I love you. And you know I love my wife. And you know that I love Molly Grace and Nathan. And you know that, that I love your church here at First Baptist Pelham. And you know I, I love what you're doing in my life and, and the blessings that you've given to me. I love these things. And oh, Jesus, if you were to demand any of that, all of that, from me, how would I respond? That's an honest question today. And you've got to ask it. You've got to answer it. Because I'll tell you this much, if there is anything, if there is anybody that you value so highly in your life that if God were to demand that thing or that person or that object from you, then you would find it hard to fall after him. Oh, my friends, Jesus is saying, I've got to be the most important person, thing, totality in your life. And the person who says, my Jesus wouldn't demand that of me. Oh, yeah? Talk to Job. My Jesus wouldn't demand that of me. Oh, yeah? Then talk to Mary and Martha. I'm not saying that Jesus is going to look to pick off the people that you love so much, but I'm saying this. Listen, all that I have, I've got to surrender unto him. I am his. I cannot pick and choose what I will give him and what I won't surrender unto him. And you say what Peter said, how is this possible? And Jesus says to us what he said to Peter. What is impossible with men is possible with God. How is it possible for us to surrender all that we are unto God? God is able. How is it possible for us to give unto him more than we can ever think or imagine? God is able. How is it possible when the pain is overwhelming? God is able. How is it possible when the suffering is off the charts? God is able. How is it possible when the stress is overwhelming? God is able. How is it possible when the God-man is nailed to the cross and his dead lifeless body is placed to a borrowed tomb and a stone is rolled in front of it? God says, I am able. From the third day, Jesus came forth from the tomb, giving power, victory over this life and the life to come, and securing your salvation and my salvation. Jesus says to anyone who listen, God is able. When I get to the point where I say, Jesus, all to thee, all to thee I surrender. And I surrender it all. He looks at me and says, there goes my disciple. Are you a disciple of Christ? Do you surrender it all unto Him and follow Him at any cost? Heavenly Father, we bow before You. We give You this invitation. You're inviting us to come and to follow You at any cost. Help us to smash our idols today. Good things that have become God things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.